Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 19 this morning. Now I would imagine that uh, most of you have seen The Wizard of Oz. Can I assume that? I don't know if all the kids would have seen it. But yeah. anybody seen The Wizard of Oz? One of my favorite scenes in The Wizard of Oz is when the um, wizard's secret is exposed. You remember where... Um, I don't know if it's Toto or whatever, runs in behind the curtain, you know, and the curtains come open and you see him in there and he's just, you know, moving all the gadgets and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, the great and powerful Oz turns out to be some short old dude, you know, that's manipulating things. And so we kind of get a glimpse behind the curtain there. And this morning we're going to get a glimpse behind the curtain as well. We're going to look at something that takes place in Ephesus, and um, when we get into it here, you're going to see that Satan is not mentioned specifically, but I'm going to try to build a case to show that he's involved behind the scenes to kind of give us a picture of what's going on and how that might apply to us as well. So we're going to walk through Acts chapter 19 today. Um, Alfredo, we'll have a picture to put up on the screen as well a little bit, a little bit later. Um, if you want, you can put that up now and just leave it there. If, uh, or somewhere about halfway through, I can have you put it up. It's up to you. Whatever works for you. But let's go ahead and, and dive right into Acts chapter 19 here. We're going to remember that Paul is actually at Ephesus. He's been there for about two years now. And he's making some plans, and we're going to see that. We're going to break this down into three sections again this morning. Let's start with this. While Paul was prepared for his next mission, he continued to take advantage of the opportunities that God had provided for him in Ephesus. We'll see that this morning. Let's look at verses 21 and 22. Acts chapter 19, verse 21 and 22. Now these things were, or um, now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in his spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed at Asia for a while. One of the things we've learned about Paul as we've gone through this study of Acts is that he didn't just wander around like a nomad preaching the gospel. He was very strategic in planning his trips. We know that he oftentimes went to the most important cities. He was very strategic in what he did. But he also relied upon the influence and the leading of the Holy Spirit in terms of how he was directed and led. We've seen before that there's times where he wanted to go off in one area and the Holy Spirit would prevent him from doing so and would ultimately force him to go somewhere else. We saw the vision with the Macedonian trip where the Lord revealed to him through a vision to go to Macedonia. And so we know that Paul was tender to the Spirit Now, there are two things that I believe primarily motivated the Apostle Paul. One was obviously evangelism. He wanted to preach the gospel, especially at times where the gospel had not been preached before. His heart was to see people one to Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. That was at the heart of who he was. But we also saw that something else that motivated him was his desire to mature and to help believers grow. He would go back and he would revisit some of those churches. In fact, we saw that when he started his second missionary journey with Barnabas, that's the impetus for it. He wanted to go back to some of those churches from the first missionary journey and help to mature and to grow those disciples. We've seen that he spent fairly significant amount of time in different places. He spent a time, a time in Corinth teaching for almost a year, year and a half. He spent some time here now in Ephesus for almost two years. He's going to spend some additional time here. And so both of those things motivated Paul, the desire to see people one to Christ, but also the desire to see them grow and mature in their relationship with Jesus. We see both of those here as well. If you look at what it says here, that Paul actually purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He said he was going to do this after he traveled through Macedonia and Achaia. And he was ultimately, his purpose and his desire was to go off to Rome. Now his purpose for going to Jerusalem was to deliver the offerings that he had collected from the churches in Achaia and Macedonia. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 15 with me. We'll see this kind of play out. Romans chapter 15. We'll jump down to verse... 25, he says, But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. 
For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. And so Paul, if you remember, had collected gifts and offerings from the Gentiles in Macedonia and Achaia, from the Gentile churches there, and he was taking those on to Jerusalem to minister to the Jewish saints that were there. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. You're going to put your finger there because we're going to stay there for a little bit. But 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Look at the first four verses here. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and to save that he may, as he may prosper, so that no collection be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem, and if it is fitting for me to also go, they will go with me. So Paul is talking to the Corinthians here. He's waiting for them to do what they've promised to do, which is to gather their offerings. He's going to then take them ultimately on to Jerusalem. Put your finger there, just keep it there, because we're going to come back to there a few times. But back in verse 22 of our passage today, we get the picture of this. It says in verse 22 that he sent into Macedonia and Achaia two individuals, Timothy and Erastus. And the reason he did that was so that they might go ahead of time and collect, so that when Paul got there, he didn't have to collect the offering. So he sent off Timothy and Erastus, as part of this mission to gather the offerings from the churches there so that they might be prepared so that as Paul traveled through there, he wouldn't have to spend time, yes, encouraging, motivating them to do what they had promised to do. Now, if we keep reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we're going to see another purpose for Paul wanting, or for him wanting to go through those regions. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We'll pick up at verse 4. He says, if it's fitting for me to go also, then they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps, and this is key, I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. Now what would Paul's reason be for wanting to stay there for a while? He didn't want to just run through, make a pit stop when it came to the Corinthians. He wanted to stay there for a while, possibly through the whole entire winter. Now we've seen his pattern at other times. Was Paul wasn't somebody just to sit on his hands. He would spend the time teaching, mentoring, discipling. And so that was another purpose for him wanting to go through Macedonia. So the first was to collect the offering. The second was to go through and to continue ministering to the disciples that were there. So We also see here that his purpose was ultimately to go to Jerusalem, and then from there it was to go on into Rome. So Paul had these two things in mind when he was planning his next steps, if you will, his next mission. Again, we're told here that he purposed in the Spirit. Now, it's always difficult to tell unless the context is very clear. It says that Paul purposed in his Spirit or purposed in the Spirit, The Greek text doesn't capitalize the S for us. We don't know if it's the Spirit or if Paul in his own spirit. Sometimes it's just simply referring to what somebody desires to do in and of themselves. But I don't know that we should make too big of a deal out of that because the Spirit works with our spirit, testifies with our spirit. So if Paul in his spirit desired to go off into Jerusalem, it was likely because the Holy Spirit had placed that upon his heart. And so Paul, again, was making these plans for his next mission, ready to go wherever the Spirit would lead him, but he wasn't quite done in Ephesus. In fact, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, you can see that as well. Jump down to verses 8 and 9 with me. He says, But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. And here's the reason why. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. 
So what Paul says is he wants to go to Corinth to finish the collection, to minister to them for a while, but he basically says, I'm not quite done in Ephesus yet because the Lord has opened up a door for me here for ministry. Luke says that in verse 22 back in Acts. It basically says that he himself stayed in Ephesus, or I'm sorry, in Asia for a while. Now it doesn't tell us exactly how long that was. We know that it ends up ultimately being about a year based on other evidence from the text. But Paul decided to stay in Ephesus because the Lord had left a wide open door for him to continue ministering in there. So while he was already a year in advance making plans to go on to Jerusalem and then ultimately from there to go on to Rome, he was still looking at what God had prepared for him in Ephesus and he was, con- was willing to stay there as long as the door kept, or as long as the Lord kept that door open for him. Now you notice... He also mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that there were many adversaries. Paul recognized that the enemy was there, and even enemies plural. And that's kind of what he faced everywhere he went, was it not? Ministry was never easy for Paul. He always faced opposition, whether it was from the Jews, or even sometimes from the Gentiles, sometimes from legal authorities. There was always adversaries. And so Paul mentions that, and so we know that this Time in Ephesus was filled with adversarial conflict. So again, Luke doesn't tell us exactly how long, but we know it was approximately a year or so. Paul stayed a total of three years. At this point, he'd been there about two years. So the first thing I want us to just see here is that Paul was always planning, was always tender to the Holy Spirit, to leading, was always looking down the road for where he was going to go next. He was very strategic in what he did. Again, just didn't wander around. But you'll notice, too, that his staying here in Ephesus, something else happens. And I'm going to label this next, se- this next session here as Satan pushes back. Because I think that's what we ultimately will see here. Paul has already mentioned to the Corinthians that there were adversaries there. And as you might expect, the longer Paul stayed, the more impact Paul had, the more opposition we might see as a result. It was fairly rare for Paul to show up at the synagogue and on the first day get kicked out. Sometimes he was there for a few weeks. Sometimes he was there for a few months. It seems that the longer things go on, the more the enemy pushes back. We think about Christ and his ministry and what he faced at the end of his ministry of three, three and a half years than what he faced at the beginning. We see something very similar here. Now, you may wonder why I labeled this as Satan pushes back when he's not mentioned anywhere in this text. I'm going to try to build an argument for that as we go through this. You may remember last week I mentioned that Ephesus was considered the magic or the sorcery capital capital of Asia. It was home to a large population of Greeks and Jewish sorcerers and exorcists. It was known for its supernatural activity and demonic activity, things like demon possession and exorcism. There was a large population of Jewish and Greek sorcerers that their trade was to basically go around and cast out demons. It's a whole formula for how they did it. They had their books and their little images and things that they would use, their little trinkets. And we saw how this all played out last week as many of them came and burned those books in the marketplace. But it was known for that. Again, it was the capital of the world at that time for sorcery and demonic activity and possession. But it was also known for something else. It was the headquarters of the largest religious cult in the Roman Empire. It was the cult of Artemis, a female Greek god. You can go ahead and throw that up if you, if you want there. Um, the picture of the temple there. I'm going to go ahead and give you guys a... Oh, he's got, already got it up there. One of the things about Ephesus was, you've heard of the seven wonders of the world, right? Great wonders of the world. One of them happened to be what you see on the screen. Now, this is a replica, actually, a full-size replica. I don't remember exactly where it's at. But this was the Temple of Artemis. I mean, the thing is, absolutely, I'm going to give you some stats here in a second. But people from all over the world would come here to this temple. And there's, there's... Pretty much are, you know, some reasons why, but we'll kind of walk through that. Um, just to give you an idea of what this thing was, I went down and saw the Parthenon down in the Tennessee campus, University of Tennessee, I think is what it was, back when I was in college, and um, it's a replica. I don't think it's full size. It's close to it, isn't it? It's like half size or something like that or third size, but um, pretty remarkable to actually see it. But this particular temple here, 
It was to the Greek god Artemis, also called Diana by the Romans. She was mainly the Greek goddess of fertility and virginity. She was also a goddess of the hunt and, and animals, but she was best known for being the goddess of fertility and virginity. Now, there were 33 of these temples, not all this size, much smaller than this. So 33 temples dedicated to Artemis all over the Roman Empire. This was by far the most magnificent one. It was the largest Greek structure anywhere in the world at the time. It was four times larger than the Parthenon that was actually in Athens. It's one of the, again, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The base of it, if you remember, there's a, like a, the stairs around it, was 425 feet long. It was 225 feet wide. The temple itself was 350 feet long by 160 feet wide. Now think about that. Some of you watched the train wreck yesterday afternoon with OSU. Think about a football field, 300 feet long. Well, this temple alone was another 50 feet beyond that. If you've ever stood on a football field, you get a picture of how big that might actually be. It was constructed entirely of marble, had 127 columns that stood 60 feet tall. I don't know how tall we're in here. Dustin, when you were up there, did you get a measurement? I don't know how many feet that is, but maybe 30 feet? Sound about right, anybody guess? At least twice what we got in here. Now, 36 of these in the front were gilded with gold and silver. You don't see that in this picture, probably because it's too expensive. Now, the inside was incredibly ornate. It was filled as well with art, Roman art from the world. It included a large statue of Artemis and then an altar that was big enough to sacrifice hundreds of animals all at the same time, right in the center. Now, hundreds of priests and priestesses, prostitutes, would all fill this temple and all worked in this temple also served as, believe it or not, the largest bank in the world. You might wonder why. People would bring their money, their gold, their silver, here at the temple because they thought it would be safe there at the temple. And the priests at one point kind of got this idea, you know, we got all this gold and silver that people store here. We could probably lend it out and make a profit. And it ultimately led to a banking institution. So this became a, one of the largest banks in the Roman Empire as well. Needless to say that this temple was the pride and joy of Ephesus. People from all over the world would come to see this temple. Again, they might come from a city that had a smaller version, a small temple, but boy, to go see the temple to Artemis and Ephesus was like a pilgrimage. And so people from all over the world came to see it. So we see that there are these two great influences on Ephesian culture. One of them was the sorcery, the magic. And the second was this religious cult of Artemis. Now what's kind of interesting is when you think about what's happening in Ephesus, we don't immediately jump to what's behind this, behind the sorcery. We don't necessarily jump and see what's behind this temple or the false religion. But as Christians, we know ultimately what that is, do we not? From the very beginning, God's enemy, Satan, chose to disrupt his creation, to corrupt it. One thing I found striking about this is when you go to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are seven churches there that Jesus talks to. Those churches are all in Asia Minor, this area. One of them specifically is Ephesus. And what I found striking was that in those short passages, when Jesus is talking to those seven churches, he mentions Satan four times. I want you to turn there with me. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, when he's talking about the uh, Jewish synagogues in Smyrna and Philadelphia, two of the churches, notice what he says. Chapter 2, verse 9, he says, 
And I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but, look at this, but are a synagogue of Satan. He repeats that in chapter 3, verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. When he's talking to Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 13, notice what he says. Chapter 2, verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness. But notice there he refers to where Satan's throne is. Now there's some question as to whether there was a physical throne there at Pergamum. There is some evidence that there might have been. So Jesus might have been specifically referring to a temple dedicated to Satan himself. It's more likely that he's referring to either something symbolic, that that's where Satan's spiritual throne was right there in Pergamum. But he could have been referring to a physical building, temple that was erected to him. And then lastly, he refers to the false teaching in Theatira as the deep things of Satan. Look at chapter 2, verse 24. But I say to you, the rest who are in Theatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no further burden on you. And so four times when Jesus is talking to these churches in Asia, he brings up Satan as being the enemy behind what was happening in their culture and their society. And there was an impact on the church, obviously. That's why he's talking to the church about it. So as we consider this, as we consider Satan's role in all this, how do you suppose he would respond when his influence over the region is being challenged and he starts to lose his grip? How would you expect the enemy to respond? Paul had been preaching the gospel. He's already had a tremendous impact on one of Satan's strongholds, the sorcerers. Remember, there were thousands of them who abandoned their practice, who confessed Christ, were even told in the text from last week that they shared their secrets. In other words, they said what was behind it. They burned their books. I think we estimated, what, $50 million or $10 million worth of books probably by today's standards. Do you think Satan's happy with that? He was controlling them. He was the power behind their sorcery. And as thousands of them begin to abandon that practice, as they make known what's behind their practice, I don't imagine he was all that thrilled. We're going to see what happens as a result of Paul's preaching the gospel and how it impacts another stronghold of his, and that's the false religion and the cult of Artemis. Look at what happens in verses 23 through 24. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workers of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. So there's this man named Demetrius. He obviously is not happy about what's happening to his business. We're told here that he made shrines and statues of Artemis. He was a silversmith. Likely what it was is he would basically contract with other silversmiths and other contractors and they would make objects and he was the primary salesman, if you will. So he gathers all these craftsmen together people of similar trades, which are probably things like craftsmen who made things out of terracotta or wood or other metals possibly. He was a silversmith himself, but archaeologically we've found small statues of Artemis and statues of this temple that were made out of terracotta and clay. So we know that was done as well. And so likely what happened here is he kind of gathered all of these tradesmen together that worked in all these other materials to make these shrines and make these statues he gathered them all together because he was concerned. They made their living selling these things, we're told. 
But Paul's preaching had a rather negative impact on this. Look at verses 25 through 27. These he gathered together with the workmen of the trade, similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that the gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there a danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificent. So, our, so this Demetrius has three concerns that he shared with his fellow tradesmen. The first one was loss of prosperity, losing money. They made their living selling these shrines. Notice what he says. Paul had persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people. In other words, the number of people they could sell these shrines to had diminished. He says that Paul had been convincing them that God, gods made with hands were no gods at all. He was specifically attributing the reduction in his business and his prosperity to the preaching of Paul. And people becoming convinced that these were nothing more than just figurines and statues. That's a great testimony to Paul's influence, isn't it? Demetrius says that this was happening not just in Ephesus, but in all of Asia. That's a big area. Some scholars and commentary suggest that Demetrius was using hyperbole here, but I don't believe so because elsewhere, look at verse 10, the word of the Lord, both Jews and Gentiles, had spread to all who lived in Asia. All in Asia had heard the gospel. Jump down to verse 20. So the word of God was growing mightily and prevailing. I don't believe that Demetrius here is using hyperbole. His business was impacted because of Paul's preaching. Because people from all over would contract with him to come in and to buy their products to be able to market them across Asia. So as a result of Paul's preaching, fewer and fewer people were buying the religious relics and it was having an impact on one of the major industries in Ephesus. Boy, that's pretty amazing if you ask me. That Paul's preaching and teaching would impact a major segment of their economy. His second concern was the loss of reputation. Look at verse 27 again. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours falls into disrepute. In other words the trade would become discredited or have no value. I kind of liken this to the way that personal injury lawyers today (laughs) are thought of. You hear phrases like ambulance chaser. You know, thank God we have personal injury lawyers, right? Because when we are legitimately injured for no fault of our own, it's good to have a lawyer sometimes to help work that out to where costs are covered and other things. I've got a friend who went through a medical procedure where a medical procedure was performed on him that he didn't ask for. Trying to find a lawyer to take his case was a difficult thing. But the reality of it is, sometimes certain trades get bad reputations because of what they do. And in this particular instance here, what he's concerned with is that people are going to look at our trade and no longer value our trade and it's going to fall into disrepute as they begin to realize that these guys are making fake gods, and as word begins to spread, they become, in some respects, ambulance chasers like we think of. Or politicians. <laughs> I mean, think about it. I, can't, I, can't, I would never want to run as a politician for anything even if I thought I could make a difference, because I almost feel like it's an uphill battle. I almost feel like my, total, my reputation that I've spent most of my life building would be totally destroyed by saying, I'm running for office, just because of how many few politicians, right? Well, that doesn't mean all politicians are that way, right? But in some respects, there's a certain amount of disrepute that gets heaped upon politicians. And so his second concern was that the trade itself would fall into disrepute. 
The third concern was the loss of religious influence. Take a look at verses, verse 27 again, the second half. He says, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Remember, this was the capital of this cult all over Asia. The temple would become worthless. No one would want to come visit anymore. As a result, Artemis would lose her influence all over Asia. And so he's got these three concerns, a loss of prosperity, a loss of reputation, and the loss of religious influence. So this threat of losing these things led to ultimately a riot that takes place in the city. Look at the way that they respond. Verses 28 through 34, we're going to read that chunk. When they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed in with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, those are politicians, basically. Some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent him, or sent of him, and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from all of them, and they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So basically what happens here, they start a riot. The first thing we notice is that it says that they were filled with rage. That's out of control anger. It's often the response we see when people are confronted with the truth, is it not? Especially when it involves the gospel. People get angry, they get upset. And we see here that they erupt with rage. The second thing we notice is the violence. They apparently couldn't find Paul, so they drag two of his traveling companions here, Gaius and Aristarchus, into the theater. The danger was great enough that when Paul decided to go in, the politicians, some friends of his, pull him back and say, no, no, Paul, you you can't go in because of the threat of violence, ultimately. Third thing we notice is the confusion that takes place. Twice in this passage, Luke mentions confusion. Look at verse 29 again. It says the city was filled with confusion. Verse 32 says there, ultimately, that the assembly was in confusion. It's another thing we often see with these types of things, is it not? The confusion, the chaos that goes along with it. The last thing we see here is what I'm going to refer to as the ignorance. If you notice in verse 32, it says that the majority did not know for what cause they had come together. They're clueless. They just see a mob forming and they decide to join them. What's striking is that even when Alexander took the stage and tried to talk, what did they do? They shout him down. They not only are ignorant about what's going on, they don't even care to know what the real reason is why they're all there. Isn't this what we saw recently? Right here? We went through with riots in how many cities, many of whom had no clue while they were there. They were filled with rage, there was violence filled with confusion and believe it or not a significant amount of ignorance many having no clue why they were there I shouldn't really say that many of them knew exactly why they were there they were there to loot, to steal and to destroy they didn't know what started it all they didn't care the enemy is the one that's behind that Satan's an agent of confusion and rage and violence and ignorance. That's why I believe that what we see here is that Satan's attempt to push back against what God had done through the gospel. Paul had been making headways in preaching the gospel. 
some of the most difficult people to reach with the gospel would have been these sorcerers that were coming to Christ by the thousands and even telling people what was happening. And now we have people recognizing that this cult of Artemis is just that and that it's not a real God and so they stop buying the trinkets, they stop buying the shrines, enough so that the tradesmen in the city begin to feel the pinch financially. Satan's losing his grip. And so how would we expect him to respond the way that he does? To stir up trouble. So ultimately, he works up these individuals, causes a riot in the city. So he was losing his grip, not just on the magicians and the exorcists, but on those who worship the false god Artemis, which in some respects means he was ultimately losing his grip on Asia, Ephesus. He wasn't going to go quietly. There's no question about that. We see that in the book of Revelation, don't we? It's all over for him. He knows it. Doesn't seem to care. That's how Satan works. He sows confusion, dissent, rage. I'm going to read you a couple of passages here just to make my point. You can write these down if you want to look them up on your own. But 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, says that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. In John 10.10, Jesus said that Satan comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's his only purpose. 1 Peter 5.8 says that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26 says that some are caught in his snare. They're held captive to do his will. Finally, Ephesians 2, 2 says that he's now working in the sons of disobedience. Do we see any of that here happening at Ephesus? Absolutely. There's no question who's behind this, and there's no question why he's doing what he's doing. The gospel was having a major impact in an area where he had a stronghold that affected not just Ephesus, but all of Asia and much of the Roman Empire. And somebody has the gall to walk in and to challenge that. And so he responds the way that he does. The good news is that the Lord intervenes. In fact, we're going to see that here in a minute. And he actually intervenes through a local government official. Look at verses 35 through 41. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since there are undeni- these are undeniable facts, yeah, That's kind of a chuckle. You ought to keep calm and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and the pronskill, those are the governors, are available. So let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. So what happens here? You get this, what they call a clerk here. Apparently wasn't a real high-level political figure, but he sees what's going on. And his primary concern is that if they riot, which is what they were doing, that Rome would not be happy, and he was right. Rome had zero tolerance for this kind of stuff. Remember, Ephesus was kind of governed by itself. Rome, for the most part, kind of left them alone to govern themselves, but at at any point at which it looked like things were out of control, Rome would be more than willing to come in and to take control and to stamp it down. So these 
country, these cities like Ephesus that were self-governed wanted to make sure that they stayed in the good graces of Rome because they valued their freedom. And so he was concerned that their riot would cause Rome to come in. It wasn't because he believed in the gospel. It was purely for the safety of the city and protecting them from what Rome may ultimately respond with. And so we see this government official come in and he actually helps to resolve the conflict and the the riot is ultimately put down. What I find interesting about this is that it's a government official that's doing this. He didn't have the gospel in mind. He wasn't doing this for God's benefit. It was all selfish motives. But God used him to put down this riot and ultimately allowed Paul to continue in Ephesus for at least a brief time afterwards. Think of this. When Pilate claimed to Jesus that he had authority to release or crucify him, what was Jesus' response to Pilate? Anybody remember? John 19.11 You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you by above. What a rebuke. You think you're this high and mighty? You think you got all this under control? The only authority you have is what was given to you by my Father. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 13, verse 1, There was no authority except given by God, and those who exist are established by Him. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. What this means is that the Lord is sovereign over government officials, and he uses them to accomplish his will and his purpose. It's that simple. Didn't we see that throughout the Old Testament? How many times did God use the pagan nations to come up against Israel and accomplish his purposes against Israel? Israel or with Israel. Manipulated him to his will. They're like channels of water that he controls. We don't always recognize that or see that because we look at wicked governments, right? We wonder sometimes. But ultimately, God is still in control and we have to take that by faith. So while we don't necessarily see Satan mentioned in this passage, and we don't necessarily see God specifically mentioned with, with, with this riot, what we glean from the rest of the scriptures and our understanding of how Satan works and how God works, we see those two at play here. And we see that God is still in control, even in Ephesus, when Satan pushes back. He's sovereign, even over the government right there in Ephesus. Enough to where one man can speak up and put down a riot. That's pretty remarkable. What are our takeaways from this passage today? The first one I think I've driven home pretty well is that Satan is the ultimate source behind chaos and corruption and wickedness and sin, the things that we see happening in culture and society. We saw it all the way back in the garden, did we not? This perfect place of peace, completely disrupted and corrupted in the very beginning by Satan. We have seen him continue to do that time and time again. Corrupting man, influencing cultures and society, all disrupting God's purpose and plan, plan, blinding their eyes, preventing them from seeing the truth, if you will. And we see that take place here at Ephesus, but I'm Think about our own culture and society right here at home. What do you think's behind what we see happening in our own country here? There's been so much just in the course of the last year or two here that has literally erupted, whether it comes down to sexuality, whether it comes down to stoking racism or hatred, whether it comes to the riots we see in the street. I mean, just this last week alone, there were, what, three different... Large, I call them large-scale looting operations that were coordinated and, and put together in structure where, in one case, 80 people broke into a store together, all fully coordinated. Another Best Buy, I think, 30 people, all coordinated. You know, Those are some things we haven't quite seen in our history here. I mean, we've seen some things, but, boy, it's almost like there is... It's almost like Satan is working overtime 
right now. Maybe that's just my perspective. But there is so much going on here that is just only explained by the sin that resides in man, but also the corruption that Satan reaps on us. What that tells us is who the real enemy is. It's not necessarily the people that he manipulates or that he blinds. But sometimes we direct our anger and our hatred at them, don't we? But it really ought to be the enemy. Because he's the one that manipulates them. He's the one that pulls the strings. And so the first takeaway for us here is that he's the enemy. He's the one that's behind what we see. The second takeaway for me here is that the gospel should be our weapon of choice. What do I mean by that? What started all of this was the gospel. Paul preaching the gospel in a city that desperately needed to hear the gospel. Satan didn't like that. So he pushes back. Doesn't mean we should change our method of fighting, does it? Because who was the one that ultimately resolved the riot here? The believers didn't do it. Paul didn't get a chance to rush in and save the day. In fact, it was God working through a secular government official. Paul says, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Let's go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 1, you all know this, but verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The gospel is our weapon. It's the word. It's the double-edged sword, is it not? Now, it doesn't mean we don't pray. Clearly, praying is an aspect of that. But it's the gospel that changes hearts and changes minds, because that's what the Holy Spirit uses. And so we see that taking place here in Ephesus, ultimately. That's where it all started. The last takeaway that I see here is we can rest assured that God is still in control. This riot could have erupted and gone sideways. It doesn't mean God wasn't in control. We see here that God demonstrates his sovereignty over all the events because, again, he uses this government official. There are some times where we see him use the government like this. There are some times where he allows the government to do what the government going to do. We know there are nations and places around this world where there are corrupt men in power. I read just yesterday that Kim Jong-un of North Korea has banned a certain style of leather coat because he made it popular and now a bunch of people are buying cheap goods to look like him. So there are wicked men Banning leather coats, right? I say that mockingly only because we know what Kim Jong-un is really like. One of the most persecuted places on the planet for Christians is in North Korea. Other places like China. Parts of Africa. We have brothers and sisters all over this planet who are being persecuted by their own government, not necessarily just by people in the community. I wish God would intervene in those cases. He certainly can. Why he chooses not to? The only argument is because it's not his will at this particular point. But the thing that the scriptures tell us is at any moment, they are like channels of water in his hand. I think about Christ and how he used Pilate. It might be looked at as a tragedy but it ultimately made it possible for us to be saved, did it not? Pilate was a channel in the Lord's hands. And even though what looked like wickedness God used for his purposes, I don't know what purpose or plan the Lord has for Kim Jong-un or Xi or any other place. I don't know what God's plan is for our own government here when I look at much of what's happening 
right now with this current administration. We've seen a number of things where they have worked to turn back some religious uh, legislation and other things that were put in place by the previous administration or previous administrations further back that now this current administration is trying to remove some of those freedoms that we have. For instance, one of the most recent ones was um, federal funding going to Christian schools that have rules against who they will and will not hire. We've seen how they've put pressure on Christian adoption agencies to change their policies as to who they will allow or work with to adopt children. We see more and more of those things being rolled back, and that is persecution. What that is. What God's purpose is in all that, I'm not really sure, but the one thing I'm absolutely convinced of is they are like channels of water, meaning God will use them to accomplish his purpose. And so what does that mean for us here? As we look around and we see things happening here, as we look at our own Ephesus of sorts, um, God has used this country for some amazing things. It was one of the tools he used to bring the gospel to so many places around the world. Satan has been working overtime, I think, to derail that influence. What God will do in the future here, I'm not really sure. But the one thing, again, that I'm absolutely convinced of is that he is still sovereign and he is still in control and he will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And there may be times that the government here comes to our defense and helps and rescues and protects us, and we should rejoice in that, much like this. But there may be times where the Lord allows them to continue doing what they do. You know, we're waiting on the Supreme Court here to make some decisions regarding abortion. We don't know what God will do with that. If he chooses to use the federal courts and the Supreme Court, to tamp down abortion, we should all rejoice because they were like channels of water in his hand. If he doesn't, we shouldn't fret and think he's lost control. He's evidently got some other purpose or plan in mind. That gives me hope. It really does. Um, we shouldn't fear the enemy. Doesn't mean he's not scary. But it also means that the primary weapon we have is the gospel. Right now, I think that's what this country needs the most. You know, we talk a lot about the next administration and polls and all that kind of stuff. I read an article the other day that said, can we really take another three years of this? I'll be real frank. I say, I don't know that we can. But the solution isn't the politics. The solution is that the church should focus on the gospel, which means we should focus on the gospel. doesn't mean we don't get involved. Focus on the gospel. But I can guarantee one thing in that. As we do that, it's going to rile up the enemy, isn't it? Let God take care of him. Let God take care of him.